That's what skinny fat is. A thin body packed with a huge amount of harmful, dangerous visceral fat. And that dangerous, harmful visceral fat in a skinny body or a big body is dangerous because it is inflammatory. Inflammation is roaring through it like a wildfire in a forest. And it's not just people who have a large body who might have too much harmful excess body fat. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. Fat is a topic that concerns a lot of people. But this conversation will make you rethink fat. And my guest today will reveal why. Dr. William Lee is a medical doctor and best-selling author of Eat to Beat Your Diet and Eat to Beat Disease. His research has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments which can be used in the treatment of diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity. Now, this conversation truly opened my eyes, and it's one that we should all listen to. And I truly do not say that often. So I'm a nutritionist and in my clinic, people come to me still to this day in 2023 with a very fixed viewpoint on calories. And they still have this understanding that calories in equals calories out and that's how they lose weight. But on your new book, Eat to Beat Diet, basically it looks at the new science of metabolism and how fat is connected to that. So I want to kind of say it's an anti-diet book. It's probably a good terminology to say. And I love that because it's more about the lifestyle. So what I really want to start this conversation today with is putting it out there. If calorie counting isn't helpful, what are people getting wrong about burning fat? This is actually the beating heart of my new book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, because even though the word diet is on the cover, that's a trick title. It really is, as you said, Sarah Ann, an anti-diet book. How do you beat the need for diet? And it really starts with understanding uh, what our metabolism is. But you actually brought in the most important, uh, I would say, secret ingredient of confusion that people have, which is that your metabolism and your fat are one and the same. So the one thing that people don't get right, and this is actually recent scientific discovery, is that our body fat is a very important organ. That's right, an organ, like our kidney, like our heart, like our brain, like any other organ in our body, our fat works on our behalf. It's a good thing. And like many other good things in life, you need to have just the right amount of it. And if you have too much of a good thing, as they say, it can actually really wreck and derail uh, your health. So let's talk very briefly about fat. First of all, what is it? Fat's also known as adipose tissue. I'm a scientist and a doctor. And so when I put on a scientific hat, we call fat adipose tissue. So when does fat form in the body? It doesn't only form after pregnancy or you know during the middle ages. No, actually fat forms in the womb when we're still, you know, a ball of cells. So when our uh, dad's sperm met our mom's eggs and we started to come together and form that future body, it turns out that as our organs are being laid out, blood vessels are first, you need circulation uh, for everything to support your body. Uh, Nerves are second because you need the electrical signals to be able to instruct every organ what to do. And surprisingly, Fat is one of the next organs that gets developed while you're still a forming fetus. 
And where the fat forms might be surprising because it doesn't form under your chin, your baby chin. It doesn't form around your uh, middle. You know, you don't actually uh, have the tire, all right? It's um, the muffin top, as they say. No, fat forms in a series of layers around blood vessels. And you got to ask why. And this is where the new science gives us this incredible eureka moment. Fat first forms around blood vessels because our fat functions as a fuel tank, just like the gas tank in your car. So this is something that a lot of people miss is this idea that, you know, fat's good. It actually is our fuel tank. And and our metabolism, by the way, is very similar to how we use fuel in the car that we drive. We don't, we're in a car. We don't actually think about the system in our car, our car's metabolism. How does it get that gas? How does it actually move that gas from the tank into the engine? We just, all we do is we focus on getting from point A to point B. And in our body, our metabolism is this silent, uh, hardwired operating system that basically helps put in fuel into our tank, which is our fat, which forms when we're still in the womb, and then take the fuel from our fat and move it to power the engine of our body. And so one of the things that a lot of people get wrong about uh, a fat is that it's a good thing it starts very early. And in fact, not only is fat a fuel tank for the energy that we get from our healthy food. Now, obviously you can feed our body very unhealthy things and the fat will grow even faster uh, and too much. But the other thing that fat does, besides being a cushion, that's another important uh, function of it, is our, our fat uh, tissue as an organ, also is an endocrine organ, meaning it secretes healthy hormones. And those hormones instruct our brain that we are actually full uh, or we're hungry. And it also helps our insulin uh, work to be able to pull in glucose into our cells, that fuel into our cells, and uh, controls uh, also lots of other aspects of our gut health uh, as well. And so you don't want to get rid of all your fat. What we want to do, and maybe this is the take-home message um, for the research I'm doing right now, is that fat is good until, until there's too much fat, which is bad. So the name of the game for health and metabolism is to tame your body fat, even if you're a skinny, slender person. Also important for you. I love that. And that's a take-home message that I think is so important because my following question, and I actually... Um, wrote to you just before this and said, what's the one thing that you wish you were asked more of? And you said about how actually how being slim isn't always healthy. There was a terminology about five years ago or 10 years ago called skinny fat that I remember always going around. And when you wrote that, that's the one thing that kind of came to my mind where I was like, I wonder if this is what Dr. Lee means. This is kind of the reset that we all need to have, uh, which is that, again, fat is good until it's bad. And it's not just people who have a large body who might have too much harmful excess body fat. In fact, the big surprise is that people who are slender, skinny, fit into any jeans, fit into any bikini, can also have too much harmful body fat. So this is what we used to call skinny fat. Skinny fat's what the journalists call it, okay? And everyone can understand it, although it seems like a uh, a hot button term. How can you be skinny and fat at the same time? Well, look, here's the thing. There's different kinds of fat and I'll break it down very simply. When you think about fat, it's like going to paint your room in two different colors, right? So you go to the paint store and you go to the section 
that has the different color swatches of paint. And for fat, what Mother Nature has done for us is given us two different colors to choose from for fat. One is called white, it's white colored, white fat. Okay, and indeed under the microscope, it looks very white. And then there is brown fat, a completely different color of paint. And in fact, it looks, the fat looks brown. Now, the key thing about white fat and brown fat, like, that's the unlock for understanding um, good fat versus brown fat. Now, all fat is good until there's too much of it. But white fat uh, is the kind that's under our skin, under our jowls, on, on the, below our arms. It could be the muffin top. It could be in our thighs. It could be our butt. But white fat, the most dangerous kind of white fat, the stuff that you can't see in the mirror, is in fact the white fat that is stuck in the tube, the, the tube of our body. So if you've got a big tube, let's call it a big waistline, because you've got a big body type, sure, you could have a lot of white fat, okay? But if you have a thin tube, all right, you're a slender person, you can still have a lot of harmful excess white fat stuffed in there. Now, how do I have people help people understand that? Let me give, give you an even clearer picture of this. This is the kind of fat, it's called visceral fat, all right? It's white colored and it's packed inside the tube of your body. And you can pack a lot of fat inside a skinny tube. So think about it. You want to mail some fluorescent light bulbs to a friend across the country, whatever country you live in. So you're going to go to the post office or the FedEx store, and you're going to ask them for a shipping box. And they're going to give you a long, skinny box to put your light bulbs in. And then you're like, well, I don't want them to break, so I'm going to order some packing. So they give you those styrofoam peanuts, terrible for the environment, but they give it to you anyway. And you're going to pour it into the skinny box. And you got a big bag of peanuts, but you got a skinny box. So now you've actually finished packing the box, but you want to use the rest of those peanuts. So what do you do? You stuff more peanuts into that skinny box. You keep on stuffing it and stuffing it and stuffing it. Now you've used up your whole bag. That box is bursting at the seams, but you're still able to force the, um, uh, the box shut and you tape it. And when you pick it up, it's still a skinny box. That's what skinny fat is. A thin body packed with a huge amount of harmful, dangerous visceral fat. And that dangerous, harmful visceral fat in a skinny body or a big body is dangerous because it is inflammatory. It doesn't have a good enough blood supply. Inflammation is uh, roaring through it like a wildfire in a forest. And that inflammation seeps out to the rest of your body, um, causing whole body inflammation. And that inflammation uh, short circuits the signals for the hormones that your fat normally produces. So you can't, you, your brain doesn't understand, am I hungry or am I not hungry? Your insulin doesn't know, should I be absorbing glucose or not? Um, so basically that is the taking the first step off the cliff to a uh, sort of a future of being less well, less healthy, and in fact, veering right towards chronic disease. That is a consequence of skinny fat. How does a slim, slimmer person know if they're carrying the unhealthy fat? What's the kind of key takeaways here? What you're asking is, how do we know how much dangerous fat is actually packed in our tube, regardless of your body size? I'll, I'll, I'll get to the model slim physique in a second, but let's just talk broadly. All right. So visceral fat is not something you can measure by stepping on a scale. So look, this is the experience, Sarah, and that we all have, right? You take a shower in the morning, you step out of the shower, you dry off. Mm -hmm. Out of the corner of your eye, you're looking at your naked body. And of course, most of us eventually see a lump or a bump or a shape that, we're, that, that 
we don't find pleasing. So the next thing immediately that we do is step on the scale, all right? That scale, however, doesn't just measure fat. It measures how much water is in our body. It measures our mm. bone. And very importantly, it measures mm. our muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And as we try to rethink what health is, health is the right amount of body fat that you need for health. It's a good amount of muscle that you need, not only when you're a kid or when you're a young adolescent with a buff body, but also as we, if you want healthy aging, you really want to have, keep up your good, healthy muscle mass. And bone structure is also very important because look, people wind up having, usually if they have good nutrition, pretty decent bones when they're younger. But as we get older, particularly people, women who are, especially who are susceptible to osteoporosis, their bones get lighter. So how do you actually do this? Well, it turns out that um, there is something called a DEXA scan that you can talk to a nutritionist or a wellness mm -hmm. center that they can actually give, put a scan on it. And a DEXA scan uh, is kind of like a CT scan that you know your doctor might do to look for a serious medical problem. But what it does is it's really beautiful. It's like a DEXA scan is like a CT scan for health. It actually measures your bone, your muscle, your water, your fat, and it can tell you exactly how much visceral fat you actually have. So this is something, you know, unfortunately, it's not something that you can do easily in your home. Most people don't have a DEXA scan at home, but there are now devices, home devices that are being developed that allow you to stand on it and uses electrical impedance, meaning it sends a little current through your foot to actually give you a sense of how much body fat you have. And, and it gives you a rough approximation of how much visceral or skinny fat you have. Okay. So when people recognize that they are overweight. Like, I don't want to body shame anybody, but you know, most people will know if they feel overweight mm -hmm. at, at, at mm -hmm. every point in their life. They have their own, yeah. uh, I call it fighting weight. You know, like how yeah. they use it in boxing? Everyone knows. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've gone on a long holiday where it's all inclusive and you've overeaten and you know that you maybe feel not yourself. Exactly. And so every, everyone, I think psychologically in their brain has a good sense of when they're over their fighting weight. And that's uh, that's one of the important things that people should not, um, that I wanna have people understand is that, listen to your body. If we actually pay a little bit more attention, this is sort of mindfulness to ourself. If we pay attention to how we're feeling, we'll have an inherent intuitive sense of where our, um, our, our center of health balance actually needs to be. All right, but what about other ways to look at um, internal healthy body, uh, unhealthy body fat, especially if you're skinny. Now, first of all, if you're a young person, let's say under the age of 25, all right, um, you're probably not gonna have too much visceral fat because you haven't lived long enough. Even if you live a unhealthy life, a very unhealthy life, cigarette, alcohol, chips, that's all you do every day in and day out. You're not gonna be healthy, but you're probably still not gonna be accumulating that much harmful body fat that you're gonna be already metabolically derailed. However, I would say after the first quarter of your life, let's just call that, be generous and call it a quarter of your life, all right? What are some of the ways that even slender people can know they're gaining too much visceral, harmful visceral fat, excess visceral fat? All right, here's a little trick, and this comes from research that was actually done in the uh, Scandinavian countries. It turns out that there's a very specific place that harmful visceral fat forms first. Can you guess where, where in the body, Sarah Ann, harmful visceral fat, excess fat, starts to accumulate first. 
I'm going to let you in on a natural remedy that I use to calm the mayhem of modern life. And it's really helped improve my sleep quality. It's the functional mushrooms Bloomin have created, which I use daily. And I'm so confident from how well they've worked for me. Bloomin are giving away a thousand free samples if you use the code LWBW1000 at checkout. In a recent randomized, double-blind and placebo-controlled study, patients with neurosthenia, a condition characterized by fatigue, headaches and irritability, were treated with reishi mushrooms. After eight weeks, they all recorded significantly lower scores for fatigue and an improved sense of well-being. And before you think shrooms, no, they don't get you high and they don't taste anything like mushroom. And for you to try for yourself, Bloomin are giving away a thousand free samples of the mushroom powder when you use the code LWBW1000 at checkout. Just head to bloomin.co.uk and get your first Bloomin product completely free. There's also links in the show notes. Around the abdominal area. Okay. Great guess, but wrong. Oh, that's how we would think about it in biology. <laughs> exactly. Well, so this is where the new science is, right? So you would naturally think um, the first place it accumulates is where we can visually see it with our eyes. Mm-hmm. Of course, that makes a sense. Your, your answer was so logical. However, mm-hmm. it turns out that's not where the first sensitive place that you can detect that visceral fat accumulates. Guess where it accumulates first? In your arteries. Oh, in your no, mouth. In your, on your, in your tongue. tongue. Your tongue gets fat first. Oh, now I need to look at my tongue. <laughs> okay, check it out. So you could take somebody that's model skinny, all right, or just slender, all right? And, and a lot of people don't realize this, but the tongue is made of three different parts when it comes to muscle and fat. The tip of the tongue is like a circus acrobat, very, very agile, um, the kind of muscle that it can move almost anywhere. Mm -hmm. Middle of the tongue is strong muscle because it needs to be able to move food towards the back of the mouth, okay, and from side Mm -hmm. to side for chewing. Mm -hmm. And then the back of the tongue is like a big bean bag of fat. About a third of your tongue is fat, visceral fat, in fact, healthy visceral fat, because what happens? By the time you've chewed your food, the back third of your tongue just allows that chewed food to slide down to the back of your throat so you can swallow it, right? Okay, so whether you're a big body person or a slender person, when you start to gain excess harmful visceral fat that can derail your metabolism at any body size, one of the first places it accumulates is in the back of your tongue, the last third of your tongue. So back to the question. So how do you know that that's actually happening? Well, it turns out many people are informed that this is happening by their bed partner. Because what happens when you're sleeping is your whole body's relaxed and the back of your tongue is also relaxed. And when you've got a fat back of your tongue, fattening back of your tongue, that fat back of your tongue slides down and obstructs your airway. So you start to snore and you wake up in the middle of the night snoring. So the bed partner often says to their skinny person that's sleeping next to them, hey, guess what? You're starting to snore. Do you realize that? And the person goes, no, I I didn't notice that. Um, And then if you ask them again, like, are you gaining any weight? They might actually say, you know what? That's really funny. I am gaining a little bit of weight. So the back of the tongue is one of the most, and snoring, 
sleep apnea is sort of one of the sleep apnea is what was coming to my head. Yeah, and by the way, sleep apnea we tend to think of as middle age or older people who are clearly overweight or obese. Okay, Mm -hmm. but I'm telling you, the new research says that this is a very sensitive early warning signal. When somebody who has a slender body starts to snore when they haven't snored before, that may be a telltale sign, a trigger uh, signal, a flag, a red flag that they're starting to accumulate harmful visceral fat. Wow, this is that's such a good takeaway. I hope that's another takeaway that people now go off and listen to their partners and go, I can diagnose you. I think you're gaining weight. You've got too much visceral fat. <laughs> Dr. Bed Partner. Literally, I mean, that is such a good insight into knowledge, just into how we can start examining ourselves and just be more aware. Because I think we're growing so much self-awareness around health. There's a lot of conversation around longevity and, you know, the blue zones that are coming out and all the different dimensions that play a part in our health. But it's these key things are really good health indicators just for us to kind of check in with ourselves. So I absolutely love that you said that. And there's there's something in your book that really drew my attention. And I really want to go on to foods that fight facts. I know you've identified over 150 and I really want to divulge what that is. Now we've just kind of determined what fat is. But before I go on, I'm very passionate about mental health and I talk a lot about nutrition and mental health. And you had a small section in your book at the beginning around too much fat that can mess with our head. And I found this really fascinating because you cited a study from the University College London, which examined 9,652 people and showed that those that who were obese had slightly smaller brains. So much, in fact, that it was 2.4% smaller than a person of a healthy weight. And that stat, or that study, let alone, really blew my mind just on how much impact, as you said, when we go to that too much fat, that's unhealthy, how it can actually mess our minds. I'd just love for you to talk a little bit about that. Right. Well, first of all, we don't have the answer yet, the precise answer of why that seems to be happening. Mm. And that's an area of research that is going on and needs to continue to help guide our understanding of Mm. the emotional and mental wellness consequences of having excess body fat. And I'm going to keep calling it excess body fat and not use, try not to use the term obesity or overweight Mm. because that tends to be finger pointing. But really excess body fat is something as we just talked about, anyone can actually have. Well, look, I mean, if fat is an organ and it controls our hormones as well, uh, there's a connection between the brain and body fat and it's connected through the nerves. Here's something really, really interesting. And this does bridge a little bit to foods that fight body fat. But it turns out that when we're eating food, okay, um, the taste of the food that we have in our taste buds naturally go to our brain, right? So everyone can remember, uh, have a memory of a favorite smell of a food that came from their mother's mm-hmm. kitchen as they mm-hmm. were growing up, right? That's, that's comfort food. It's a smell that takes us back to something that we grew up with and and find comforting. Well, so you already know that there is some connection between food and our brain, but that mm. those signals have to pass us through our nose and our taste buds. And it tells you that there's wiring that connects our mouth to our brain. That's the first start to signal uh, that there's some mouth-brain connection. But did you know that our brain, the nerves that come out of our brain actually course down our neck on both sides of our neck, and they actually go to our body fat, all right? So when we stimulate our uh, mouth with different kinds of foods, 
they do text message our brain, and then our brain releases other signals and hormones that communicate with our body fat, good and bad, all right? And, and it changes the, the neurotransmitters in our brain as well. So there's also direct impact on what actually happens in our brain. And by the way, those nerves continue beyond our body fat down to our gut, our lower gut, where our gut microbiome is. And of course, you know, with Zoe and all these other really uh, fantastic scientific programs that are going on, we're beginning to realize more and more just how important our gut microbiome, healthy gut bacteria is. So you're talking about the gut-brain connection, and that gut-brain connection goes from, you know, the tailpipe of our gut all the way, but it starts in our mouth, it goes to our brain, and it can affect how our brain goes. I want to tell you one more thing that, from my perspective as a researcher, where this could affect the size of our brain as well. Please. Okay. We used to think that the human body is unable to regenerate, right? Because when we were kids, I'm sure, Sarah, and you, even though we went to different grade schools, uh, uh, kindergartens, I'm sure your teacher and my teacher said the same thing. Starfish can regenerate, salamanders can regenerate, but humans cannot regenerate, right? That's what we learned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not true. Not true anymore. That chapter in that textbook has been ripped out and thrown out the window. We know, in fact, the humans do regenerate. And we've started to figure out that our stem cells, 70 million stem cells in our bodies, actually contribute silently behind the scenes to regenerating our health. We don't even know that our liver needs a little regeneration. Um, mm. Oh, you had that weekend where you, you know, had, had a little bit too much to drink? Guess what? Silently, your body sends out those stem cells to repair. You drink a little too much alcohol, your brain shrinks. You got to regenerate that. So even the brain, we now know, has a capability of regeneration. And this is actually a dynamic process that happens every single day behind the scenes. So one hypothesis of why uh, excess body fat might actually impact on brain size could be the impairment of our stem cells to be able to help maintain the rejuvenation, the renewal, the support of the structure and revitalization, the regeneration of our brain tissue itself. We don't know this for a fact, but it's a scientific hypothesis that the, our brain actually has to be maintained in its size. You don't, keep, you don't keep replenishing it with healthy cells. It will naturally start to shrink. Wow. It's so fascinating. I've got five different questions to come off here. And I'm like, which one do I start with? Because I know that you've got a whole section in your book around stems, stem cells and regeneration and actually where it's good to regenerate and where it's not great to regenerate. So if it's in our fats within our organ, we don't actually kind of want them regenerating there because it's producing more fat. Whereas if you said we put them somewhere like our heart, then actually it could be really, really helpful. So what foods are in this sector that can be really helpful and what foods can actually be really harmful when we're looking at regeneration? I have a favour to ask. 74% of people that watch this podcast haven't hit subscribe and 15% haven't hit the bell to turn on notifications. I want this podcast to reach as many people as possible to keep sharing expert information and powerful stories to improve your life. So if you've ever enjoyed my podcast, please hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications. Doing this small favor will really help me. Thank you. 
So uh, I wrote a book called Eat to Beat Disease, which is my first book that, that really focused on not just foods, but how the body responds to what you feed it. And it turns out that our health, including our metabolic health and the health of our healthy fat, is very reliant on our stem cells. These are stem cells, by the way, when we, when we were formed in our mom's womb, just to go back for a second, it was all stem cells, the little ball that was us, the future us, we, that was all stem cells. What's a stem cell? It's very simple. It's a cell that hasn't figured out what it's gonna be when it grows up. And mm -hmm. so it can be anything. And when we were born, we were born with more stem cells than we actually needed. So there's overage, excess stem cells. In fact, you know, when you cut the, the umbilical cord when you're born, there's a ton of stem cells that are still stuck in the umbilical cord. Anything in our body gets packed away in our bone marrow, in our skin, in our heart, in our livers, lung, a little bit in our body fat as well. But you know, there's this whole process that um, first time or that parents are asked by their obstetricians is, hey, do you wanna save your baby's, um, your cord stem cells? And some people choose to do that. You can actually squeeze out those stem cells and put them in a bank so you can use them later should you ever need them. But I will tell you that um, regardless, if you don't save them, they automatically get saved in your body. It's kind of like a savings account, okay? <laughs> and, and they get, and a lot of, most of them are saved in our bone marrow. So what's mm -hmm. a bone marrow? You know, if you break open a chicken bone or a beef bone, an ossobuco, all right? If you look inside the middle of the bone, that's where the bone marrow is. That's where the stem cells live like bees in a beehive, okay? throughout our entire life. And, uh, and like bees, they will come out to the flower fields wherever they are needed. But instead of mm -hmm. coming to pick the pollen, they're going to fix and regenerate um, the organs. So there are certain foods that we eat that can actually call out healthy stem cells. So what are some of these foods? Well, not only do we know what some of the foods are, we also know what's inside the food that can trigger this beneficial regenerative response. I'll give you a couple of them, barley barley and mushrooms, mushrooms, um, they both contain a natural bioactive called beta-D-glucan, that's G-L-U-C-A-N. Mm -hmm. And beta-D-glucan is a soluble fiber. So it doesn't, it's not roughage. It doesn't actually, you know, it's not like uh, makes you want to go to the bathroom and be regular. It actually dissolves. And it turns out beta-D-glucan does a lot of interesting things. Um, it's good for your gut microbiome, but beta-D-glucan stimulates your stem cells to participate in regeneration. So you can make more stem cells work harder, faster, better for you by eating mushrooms and barley because it's got beta-D-glucan. All right, what's another food that can actually do this? Well, it turns out dark chocolate. Uh, who doesn't like dark chocolate? Dark chocolate. Thank goodness. <laughs> right, that's the response I get from most people. Now look, chocolate's a confection, so it's a candy. So I wanna be really careful to make this distinction. Dark chocolate, is better because it has more cacao. Cacao is a plant-based food. Comes from a cacao pod, which comes off a tree, and it is very much packed with dietary fiber, which is good for our gut microbiome, good for overall health, but it has polyphenols called proanthocyanidins, okay? So, you know, for your listeners and viewers, don't worry if you can't pronounce or spell these things. Like, let people like me who study food as medicine do the heavy lifting for you, but just know that dark chocolate plant-based, has more of the plant-based cacao, has these bioactives. Now, what does proanthocyanins do? These chocolate, dark chocolate polyphenols, cocoa polyphenols, they call out stem cells. In fact, there was a study done out of San Francisco and the University of Texas that showed that in 60-year-old men, 
with coronary heart disease, bad blood vessels, bad hearts, that if they drank two cups of dark, hot cocoa Mm. that is really enriched with polyphenols, they could double the number of stem cells in their bloodstream that can repair their circulation and improve their heart function after 30 days. So if you just drank two cups a day for a month, that's how this experiment was done. And then they measured the number of stem cells in the blood. That's a blood test. Bada bing, twice, all right? Then they measured functionally how resilient their circulation was. That's using a test called FMD, flow-mediated dilation. How resilient are your circulation? That also doubled. That's how powerful uh, your stem cells can actually be. And there's a whole other list of foods as well. Um, Dried fruit, because the skin of fruits contain ursolic acid. Ursolic acid, which is found in the skin of, of, of fruits, dried fruits, you get a lot more skin per unit that you put in your mouth, right? So it would be hard for you if I, you know, if you and I sat across the table from each other and we challenge each other to eat six apricots, all right? We could probably do it, but it wouldn't be a lot of fun. But mm-hmm. if we had six dried apricots, you and I could just have this conversation right now, this podcast, and, and just knock them down, right? And But you get all that skin. The ursolic acid is in that skin. That's another example. And by the way, if you ever try this, this is why it's better to, whether for if you're going to get for the skin of the fruit, to get organic fruits because um, the skin tends to accumulate the pesticides. It's very hard to wash them off. Wow, that's super interesting. And I'd love to know, what's your thoughts on dried fruit versus fresh fruit because of the sugar content? Okay. Because if we're so talking this, about fat and metabolism, that's just mm, one thing that comes to my mind when you spent mentioned dry fruits. Yeah, great question. So like anything that is complicated, there's no black and white answer. So is sugar bad? No, your, bar, your brain needs sugar normally. Your body will make sugar normally if you don't get enough of it from your diet. And, and fruits and vegetables, even ones that are not very sweet, have sugar in it. Sure, a summer peach has a lot of sugar. Uh, watermelon has a lot of sugar. But, you know, broccoli also has a fair amount of sugar, natural sugars in it uh, as well. Those are all super good for you, not because of the sugar, but because those calories that you're getting are um, high-value calories, right? You, you have all these other polyphenols and dietary fiber, uh, all the bioactives from the fruit that counterbalance the potential detriment of whatever sugar it is. So I always say when it comes to produce, fruits and vegetables, if you're eating normal, healthy amounts that are good for your taste buds, a healthy part of a balanced meal, don't worry about the sugar in them. If you have normal blood sugar control, like if you're diabetic or pre-diabetic, maybe that's something to be more careful about. You want to talk to a nutritionist or dietitian about, but I think for most people it's fine. Um, Now, what about added sugar? Well, just like, you know, fat, too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. Added sugar, which is what we, you know, we started this conversation about. Well, what about soda? A lot of added sugar in a typical can of soda, like nine teaspoons full of uh, refined sugar. If I gave you an empty cup, Sarah Ann, and put nine teaspoons of granulated sugar and said, uh, drink that down, you would be horrified, right? Like I would be. I would be as, in, as a nutritionist, I'd be horrified. Right. And my teeth would be as well. A- exactly. But it turns out that, um, you know, added sugar 
is detrimental for your health, but natural sugars in the quantities that you would eat normally in fruits and vegetables are just fine. I think sugar gets vilified, you know, just like the way the fat's gotten vilified. Um, uh, and I think this is where this is where the conversation needs to go. And I'm so glad that you brought this up, uh, Sarah Ann, which is that, look, we, we should stop taking black and white views. Sugar will cause cancer. Actually, you know what? The, uh, the, the something more likely to cause cancer is not sugar, but breathing in the off-gassing for your new carpet or from your, um, at the gas station pump. You know, so these are things that, you know, we don't have the same conversation about. Let's try not to vilify our food. Let's try to respect what it is that Mother Nature delivers to us. And let's just make better choices. So fruits and vegetables, sugar is fine. You asked about dried fruit. Look, it is true that you could eat um, six, you and I could eat six dried apricots pretty quickly, but we would probably not eat six whole apricots quite as much, uh, uh, quite as quickly. We'd be reluctant to eat it. So we would actually be eating more of the sugar in there. Uh, and that's why everything in moderation. I would say that eating six dried apricots at a sitting is probably in excess. But, you know, having two or three of them, probably fine if they're part of your fiber-gaining, polyphenol, regenerative kind of um, snacking pattern, much better than a bag of chips, uh, crisps, that you might actually want to uh, eat, right? So again, let's try to be a little bit more um, refined in the choices that we make. We do it all the time, by the way. These difficult choices, uh, what's better for us, what's safer for us, we do that. If you're, if you're listening to this and you go skiing in the winter, you know, we all wear the same ski outfits and we have the same skis. But, you know, you're going to make a decision of which track you're going to go down that mountain. You're going to go the green, the blue, or the black diamond, you know? And so I think that everyone can make better choices as a way of confronting food. Yeah, and I think I love that, that, you know, the fact that actually the more information we have, the more open to choice that we have. And I know not everyone has the same variety of choices for a, a kind of an amalgamation of reasons, but I was even sat um, with somebody yesterday and her family grew up in Lebanon. And she said, you know what? My parents are both over 100, so they're centarians. And we can't, we're kind of getting a little bit obsessed with, you know, centarians at the moment to longevity, to how can we live forever. Um, but, you know, she said, they never really thought too much about the health, but the things that were really important to them were having a having a community where they all lived together and they all were very supported and all of their food in moderation. Nothing is too much of an excess. And to her, she said, that to me is kind of the key to what I think health is. And I couldn't agree more on that subset when we're actually thinking, when we really zoom back out and take kind of like a full view lens on health, we can get really caught up on all of these little things to do. And actually, sometimes we can then stress ourselves out so much that we're not doing it correctly, that it causes a reverse effect. And so I do think that's kind of one of the key things, as you said, you know, anti-diet and taking the stress off yourself a little bit. Yeah. I mean, this is, listen, the type of research and science that I'm involved with, the further we dig into the science underlying our health, the more we realize that the very recommendations that you just made, enjoy your life, don't stress out too much, embrace your community, seek a community if you don't have one, and then to be moderate about your food, but really enjoy your food. And by the way, food is a communal activity. Only in our modern fast-paced age do we think that it's okay to grab a box or a bag of something that's, you know, through a drive-through window and eat it by ourselves in a car. I mean, that is so antithetical to the humanity 
of nutrition and healthy living. And so I think that taking the time to be more mindful, and this is one of the things that I said earlier that does tie into mental health and wellness, is that we need to listen to our bodies. And when we do so, we actually live healthy, we, our minds get healthier as well. And then you have to connect those dots and make those healthy choices in moderation, not in excess. Completely agree. And actually, I know that you've just come back from France, but the one thing the French are fantastic at doing when I used to live in Paris was always have an hour's lunch break. <laughs> I always remember trying to speak to my people at work and they were all just out having a lovely long lunch break. It's just the one memory I have of Paris. <laughs> and most people don't eat alone. No, they don't. They all eat together. Yeah, there'd be like three or four of them every lunchtime. And, and think, about, think about this as well. We, in many fast-moving parts of society, usually try to minimize lunch as a quick and dirty, like run, run and eat kind of thing. I don't want to be bothered by lunch. But in fact, in cultures that really value that community and food aspect, lunch becomes a wonderful opportunity to celebrate food. And it doesn't, mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't have to have a fancy lunch. You know, in, Fr in France, where I just get returned from, a beautiful lunch could be a lovely salad. But a salad that you'd order in even a little sidewalk cafe uh, in, in, in France is as a work of art. You know, mm -hmm. somebody assembled all these different diverse plant-based ingredients into your salad and then added components to it to make it really tasty that you don't need to have anything else, and you want to take the time to enjoy that. So again, diversity of food, taking the time to enjoy it, all ingredients, let's say, to a healthy metabolism, a healthy life. I love that you're hitting on all the points that are so important, like your diversity of the food that you're eating. So it's not just about eating like a subset of food, it's about like, the richness of diversity, including those plant-based foods, community, anti-diet. Like we're really trying to, you know, break that stigma of how I think I grew up in the 90s with, you know, calorie counting and being scared of fat. But in your book, and I love this, you've got a, two columns. You've got your slow down food. I just love that you've called it that. It's such a great concept just to think about. Um, and then you're swapping foods. And so when we kind of started this conversation, we spoke about how important it was for fat and metabolism and how we need to kind of like banish this idea of calorie counting because it might not be the most helpful. So people are looking at, okay, well, how can I actually take control of my body weight if I want to and not go to, in too much excess? What are the foods that we need to be slowing down and what are the foods that we need to be swapping in? And what are those kind of fat burning foods that you call them in your book? Yeah, okay. Let's just go straight to those fat burning foods because really if you know that there are certain foods that you're eating that are gonna slow you down, um, ultra processed foods, fried foods, you know, um, heavy saturated foods with saturated fats and very few other benefits, okay? You know, mm. um, move those out of the way and, and swap in the foods that are good for you. What are those foods that are healthy swap-in foods? They tend to be, not exclusively, I'm going to come to the, to the exceptions for, in a second, but they tend to be healthy, fresh foods that you would actually get in a grocery store, in the fresh section of the grocery store, or in a farmer's market. Um, you know, we we're just talking about France. Uh, even in the middle of Paris, you don't have to go very far. Uh, and almost every day, someplace in the city, there's a fresh market where the farmers come in and sell their fresh goods. So what are some of those foods and what did they actually do? Well, it turns out 
We're talking about, let's use the example of a summer market, tomatoes. What's in this fruit, this red fruit? It turns out that uh, there is a natural bioactive called lycopene. Lycopene is uh, is found in the skin of the tomato. It's also found in the flesh of the tomato. It actually is a carotenoid. It helps to make the tomato color red. So you also get lycopene in guava, papaya. You also get it in watermelon. And lycopene is a powerful antioxidant. Um, In fact, what's really interesting, and I'll come to the fat in a second, but this is a little extra bonus tip about tomatoes, is that studies have shown that if you eat the equivalent of a tomato salad two hours before you go out into the sun, like go to the beach, right? Um, It actually, that lycopene in your body, eaten two hours before, can protect your cells from DNA damage, from ultraviolet radiation by about 60%. It's inner sunscreen. Right? That's the stuff like beta-carotene as well. Beta-carotene yeah. has a similar, which is like your carrots and your, your orange pigment fruit. But I didn't Precisely. realize that was also with um, tomatoes. Exactly. Right. And so really interesting way of actually protecting yourself from life life. So Mother Nature is really resourceful. So she usually gives these bioactives lots of different job descriptions. So the lycopene also does something very interesting to your body fat. Now, I want to explain, I want to just th- introduce a, just a tiny bit of chemistry here for everyone listening. <clears throat> you don't have to be a scientist, but I want to explain it to you. Um, most natural foods are either dissolve well in water or they dissolve better in oil, right? So think about it. Salad dressing is mixing both. That's why you got the oil and the vinegar and you got to shake it up before you put it in your salad. Otherwise, it would naturally separate. Well, it turns out the lycopene in a tomato, if it had to choose between dissolving in water or dissolving in oil, it will dissolve in oil. In fact, it really likes to dissolve in extra virgin olive oil, like in olive oil. And what happens is that when you eat a tomato or when you actually cook tomato with olive oil, think Mediterranean diet, you really get a lot of that lycopene into the olive oil. And because it's already dissolved in the olive oil, when you eat the tomato and it's in your gut and your uh, and the, the oil and it brings the lycopene into your bloodstream, you can get about um, uh, three times more lycopene, the good stuff, into your bloodstream if it's been, the tomato's been sauteed in extra virgin olive oil. So cooking and preparation also can make a difference to get more of the good stuff. Now, once the lycopene's in your body, remember what I just told you, it, it prefers to dissolve in oil. Well, what's oil? Oil's fat. So guess where the lycopene is going to dissolve in your body after it's in your bloodstream? It's going to make a beeline for your body fat. In fact, this has been studied in young women who are in college and graduate school, so normal, young, healthy women, and they try to figure out where does the lycopene go? Where, what kind of fat, where does it go in the fat? So first it goes to the belly, belly fat. Next, it goes to the thighs, thigh fat. Third, the lycopene dissolves and 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 homes in like a heat-seeking missile to your butt fat, all right? And once it's embedded in your fat, what does it do? It actually goes to town and prevents fat cells from expanding so quickly because that's why, why, why we visibly see lumps and bumps in our body is when individual fat cells begin to expand and you get a hundred, a thousand, a million of these fat cells expanding. Now you can see it in a mirror, okay? So lycopene from tomatoes, especially cooked in olive oil, actually has this added benefit of actually helping to prevent our fat from expanding. But there's even a more um, sophisticated trick uh, it can, uh, the lycopene has up its sleeves. Lycopene, once we eat it, activates 
a kind of fat called brown fat. Now, remember, I just said a few minutes ago, we've got uh, two different kinds of fat in our body, white fat, like going to the paint store, and brown fat. Well, brown fat is what lycopene triggers. It's like turns on the switch of brown fat. Now, why, what, the, what does that mean? When you turn on the switch of brown fat, I, I call it firing up your brown fat. It ignites your brown fat. Your brown fat uh, undergoes something called thermogenesis, meaning it fires up the heat. It basically fires up energy consumption. And where does it actually draw that fuel in order to burn down, um, uh, to burn the, the heat for thermogenesis? Your brown fat draws the fuel from your white fat. So the good fat, brown fat, depletes the fuel, the fat, from your harmful white fat. Good fat, brown fat fights harmful fat, white fat, starting from the visceral fat, the stuff in your tongue, and the stuff that packed into the food of your body. Tomatoes with lycopene will do this, which is really, really amazing. By the way, I gotta tell you, Sarah, and, uh, and people will remember it this way. This is why I wanted to tell to you. Why is brown fat brown? I'm a scientist. I always like to ask, like, why, right? It's like the little kids that go like, hey, mom, why is brown fat brown? There's an answer to that. It turns out that the um, engine that fires up the uh, uh, brown fat uh, are called mitochondria. These are tiny little fuel cells um, that are in normal parts of our human cells. And there's a lot of mitochondria, like these like nuclear batteries packed into our brown fat. Now, mitochondria, they're in there because that's what, that's what they, the battery uses to fire up the fuel consumption actually contain a lot of iron. That's what's in mitochondria, a lot of iron. Now think about what iron is. If you had a pile of nails made out of iron nails and you left them outside, what color would they turn after a couple of weeks? Brown. So the brown fat is brown because of the fuel cells, the batteries in there that can burn down harmful body fat. And those batteries have a lot of iron. And when iron gets oxidized, just like pile of rusty nails, they turn brown. That's why brown fat is brown. Oh, I love that clip. I love that tip. Brown fats. And I obviously have learned about brown fat and white fat, obviously from my biochemistry days, my nutritional days. But I wish they explained that to me like that in a lecture. I would have just got it so much easier. <laughs> Exactly. And I, it's one of those things that you can visually now represent and it just makes this whole conversation around having choices and why to make those choices a lot easier when it comes to food. Yeah. And it, it was making me think when I was reading it, you mentioned obviously soda is one of the things that we should be avoiding. And I'm just looking down what I'm drinking and I've started to drink a lot more green tea. And I know that you've got a part in your book about green tea. You recommend two to three cups a day, which is actually quite a lot. Why should we be having more green tea in our diet? What's kind of the fundamental properties that it's got? I'm so happy that we've teamed up with Bloomin' for this season of the podcast to claim your free month of natural mushroom-based supplements. Head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code LWBW1000 to try it for free. There is a link in the show notes. Well, let's pick up from what I was just talking about. You know, the brown fat being fired up and activated by tomatoes and lycopene, it turns out many other foods can do something very similar. Green tea has polyphenols called catechins, and these catechins have been studied, and guess what they do? They do a lot of good things for your health, okay? But we're, for the purpose of our conversation today, it's been discovered they also activate our brown fat. 
They help to fire up our brown fat to burn down harmful white fat so they consume fuel. And by the way, if you're sipping tea all day, um, I do recommend about three cups of green tea a day. That's most of the epidemiological studies have shown, you know, if you go to three to four cups of green tea a day, it's, 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 that's where the sweet spot, that's where the good stuff starts to happen in your body. But rather than think about chugging, we're not talking about soda, you know, we have to finish a can or finish a bottle or finish a glass. Green tea, if you look at Asia, Japan, China, okay, my grand uncle who grew up in a tiny little town, was a village um, in China, lived at the base of a green tea mountain. He lived to 104 years old, independent, sharp of mind, um, and he attributed his great, long, healthy aging quality of life to the fact that he sipped tea all day long as a beverage, as a beverage that was at his fingertips. So he always had a mug like you just had there, somewhere within reach, and he sipped it all day long. And by the way, when the tea was emptied, he just put more hot water in it because tea leaves or tea bags can actually be used over and over and over again. We don't actually have to throw it out and get a whole new pot. Just put some loose leaf tea, hot water, and you can sip that all day long. And you'll probably have more than three cups over the course of a day. So green tea uh, can activate your brown fat to burn down harmful white fat, to improve your metabolism, because when fat goes down, your metabolism will actually naturally rise at any age, even middle age people. And by the way, you're also burning away harmful body fat packed inside the tube of your body. And eventually it will also start to affect the fat that you can see in the mirror. You mentioned coffee as well, Sarah Ann, and I wanna actually um, make one clarification that I think will be helpful for people. Um, uh, coffee is actually good for you. I actually drink coffee as well. I drink coffee and tea. I tend to drink coffee in the morning and I'll sip tea for the rest of the day. Yeah. So coffee is actually really great. So what's in coffee? I told you that there's catechins uh, in tea. Well, we do know that there's something called chlorogenic acid, chlorogenic acid in coffee. Now, chlorogenic acid does the same thing that lycopene and catechins from green tea do, fires up your brown fat to burn down harmful white fat. So again, we're starting to find common pathways um, uh, that foods can actually um, help activate these health triggers uh, in our body in order to be able to improve our metabolism and burn down harmful body fat. Look, this is very different than taking these prescription weight loss pills or having liposuction, you know, all this crazy obsessive stuff that people are actually doing. Look, have a coffee in the morning and sip green tea the rest of the day. So let me tell you a little other pro tip about coffee, chlorogenic acid. Chlorogenic acid is also, is found in coffee, but not just coffee. It's also found in apples, it's found in pears, it's found in other fruits as well, okay? But it's really powerful in coffee. Now, if you wanna get the most out of your coffee, you wanna actually get um, a medium roast coffee compared to a light roast or a dark roast. Dark roast will, uh, is, will start to degrade the chlorogenic acid. You'll still get some, but you probably degrade about 30% of it. Medium roast, it's at its peak, number one, for chlorogenic acid in coffee. But if you want to really max out, okay, and, and I do understand, some people are, want, are interested in knowing, like, how do I, if this is good, how do I do even better? You want to max out on your chlorogenic acid in your coffee? Drink coffee made with organic coffee beans. Organic coffee beans will have the most, up to three times more, chlorogenic acid than conventionally grown beans. Now, why is that? It turns out that chlorogenic acid, like many of the bioactives you find in fruits and vegetables, plant-based foods, these bioactives like chlorogenic acid are made by the plant 
as a response to being wounded uh, when they're growing. And you're like, well, what are you talking about wounding? I'll tell you what I'm talking about. When you grow naturally in the wild, plants like coffee plants grow with little insects that are nibbling on their leaves and stems. Every little nibble is an injury to the plant. And the wound healing response of the plant is to create more chlorogenic acid. You make more of the good stuff when, there's when it's living in a natural state with um, natural insects in the environment. Now, you spray that with pesticides, you have all, very few insects, a little, little, lot less nibbling going on, less wounding, less need to create chlorogenic acid. And so this is why organic beans have been researched and shown to have much more chlorogenic acid than conventionally grown beans. Well, and that's just one, one really good example of actually why organic can even be better for you as well. Like, as well as just the beans that you choose, why that organic kind of stamp is actually really, really important if we can make those food choices. Exactly. And by the way, this, what I just told you is a common theme. We're finding it in strawberries. We're finding it in pears. We're finding it in apples. I used to recoil in a negative way when organics first came out and the sales pitch to me was yeah. that here you have the opportunity, Dr. Lee, to pay more money to have less of something that you didn't want to have in the first place, which are chemicals like pesticides. I just felt that was wrong. It was morally wrong, ethically wrong. I just felt it was wrong inside. Okay. Now I actually um, feel differently, very differently with this new research because number one, the price of organics has come down overall and a stamp is a guarantee, but you don't even need to have that stamp if you know the grower, the farmer, and they're using organic practices. That to me, if I know my grower, actually can be good enough. But the key part of it is that um, now the research shows that you get more of the good stuff, the more better bioactives that activate your health, activate your metabolism, improve your health defenses, raise your shields of health, that I'm willing to invest in. Mm. I am willing to invest in my health by getting more from the type of plant that's grown under conditions that are more natural, where they're going to have more things that defend the plant and also defend me. Which, by the way, takes me to a little uh, a public health statement I want to make, which is that these bioactives I just talked about are now being confused in some circles uh, online as anti-nutrients. I don't want people to, uh, to pay attention to this term anti-nutrient, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, there are thought leaders and there are uh, influencers who are talking about anti-nutrients. It's all baloney. That's a made-up word. There's no scientific term called an anti-nutrient, a bioactive produced by a plant that deliberately prevents your body from absorbing other nutrients. Most of these polyphenols and natural chemicals activate your health defenses. That's what food as medicine research is revealing. If there's something dangerous in a plant, it's going to be a poison. You don't want to eat it. There is so much mixed in health information out there. So the more that we can have this conversation around terms that aren't correct is fantastic. And that leads me to something that I actually saw, and I'm wondering if this is true, on food combinations. Now, because I'm British, I love my tea. Now, is it true that if you add in milk to an Earl Grey tea or an English breakfast tea, that is less good for you? I don't say I want to say less healthy, but less potent. I did research doing comparative effectiveness of health with different types of tea. And we were trying to be completely open-minded and not 
uh, have a preconceived bias to say that green tea was going to be better than other teas, black teas, right? The fermented teas. And well, as it turns out, um, we were surprised that the Japanese and Chinese teas, while they were quite potent, were less potent in one study, one health attribute of green tea, which we looked at the effect on our circulation. Turns out that Earl Grey was better than both Chinese and Japanese tea, green teas by itself. Now, maybe it has to do with the bergamot that creates that orange Mm. fragrance in the tea. But nonetheless, there you have it. And then for combinations, then we blended the Japanese and the Chinese tea together. Now we got synergy. So even within teas, when you blend them, and this is that tradition that you see in England, for example, blend a tea blending and to look at, you know, different types of not just the flavor now, even the health benefits look like they can be uh, different. Um, I'm going to come back to the dairy and the milk in a second. However, what about other teas? What about oolong tea? That that kind of the brownish tea that you get in a, in a Chinese restaurant on a tabletop? I love an oolong tea. <laughs> oolong tea is a lightly oxidized tea that's um, a little bit more oxidized than green tea, which is like not oxidized. Also really powerful for your metabolism because the catechins that green tea gives you, also present in oolong, also activates your um, good fat to burn down your harmful fat and improves your metabolism. Excellent uh, choice. Now, what if you go to the far extreme, the most oxidized tea you can imagine is also a fermented tea called pu-er. That's spelled P-U apostrophe E-R, Pu'er tea. Comes from the village of Pu'er that was on the Silk Road thousands of years ago that connected Asia to Europe, the Mediterranean, right? This is the silk trading route. And what people, and I read about this in my book as well, Eat to Beat Your Diet, you know, people think about trading silk on the Silk Road. That's how it picked up its moniker. But it turns out that they traded food and recipes as well. But you're talking about journey by camelback or horseback over thousands of miles in very inhospitable territory. So when they wanted to trade goods like tea, they had fermented tea, highly oxidized, so it would last the journey. So when they, so Pu'er was a village that created Pu'er tea, highly fermented, it would last the journey of thousands of miles to be traded um, into Europe and the Mediterranean. It turns out that the Pu'er tea is a fermented tea. It is great for your metabolism. Great for your metabolism. It's the smokiest, darkest tea you can imagine. It's a digestive. Actually, after eating a meal in in traditional uh, banquet ceremony in China, sometimes they'll serve you some poor, a little cup of poor tea, kind of like the single cup of espresso you get at the end of an Italian meal. This poor tea is good for the metabolism. It's studied in clinical trials in humans And one of the reasons is because of the catechins that's still present in this highly oxidized tea, but it is a probiotic tea. Fermented foods have their healthy bacteria, like kimchi, like sauerkraut, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. yogurt. And it turns out that poor tea has its own bacteria, and that's a bacteria that you actually sip in the tea, activates your gut microbiome, improves your glucose sensitivity, slims down your harmful visceral fat. Quite amazing. So please, uh, Sarah Ann, continue to enjoy your green tea, enjoy your coffee, enjoy your oolong, but explore tea. It looks like the more research showing is all good for us. So I want to actually give you now the qualifier of how to get the most out of your tea. 
Yeah. Now, I, you know, I've traveled to um, England. I know what a hallowed tradition and a delight it is to actually have an afternoon tea. And, you know, I, I know that having milk or cream in tea is something that many people actually do, um, mm-hmm. as well as in coffee. Now, one of the things that I write about, and this is very clear from research, is that when you put dairy in tea, well, I'm not talking about the saturated fats, I'm not talking about any of that stuff. It turns out that, that dairy milk, I'm, I'm saying dairy milk meaning cow milk, um, actually forms in liquid little soap bubbles. The fatty part of the, of the milk will form little soap bubbles in the tea. The fat likes to stick together in little soap bubbles. Those little soap bubbles trap the bioactives, like the chlorogenic acid in coffee, like the catechins in green tea. And when you actually drink that with tea or coffee with milk or cream, dairy, cow, all right, the, some of the catechins, the, or chlorogenic acid, the good stuff, is in the middle of the soap bubble. And the soap bubble goes into your stomach and rolls down into your intestines before you can actually absorb it. So you absorb about 20% less of the good stuff in your upper gut than you would if you drank it straight. You still get it. You just get a little bit less. Now, Mm -hmm. that's because of the fat in dairy, Mm -hmm. the dairy fat cow. But if you use soy milk, nut milk, almond milk, it doesn't do the same thing. So pro tip is that if you enjoy cutting your, the flavor of your coffee with a little bit of milk, choose a plant-based milk instead of a dairy milk, and then you'll be able to completely enjoy it. And if you do enjoy dairy, just know that you're just getting a little bit less because you're absorbing less. Some of it's being carried to the lower part of your gut. Wow. I mean, all of these things are so fascinating. I generally love oat milk, so I feel quite pleased with that research. (laughs) That when you said nut milks, I thought, oh gosh, what are you going to say? But actually, we're fine if we're drinking non-dairy milk. But for you, what would be your top five? And I feel like tea and, well, green tea or the other tea that you mentioned and tomatoes would be those two. But what would be the other ones that you would say to try and include after you listen to this podcast to really help? eat to okay. beat your diet, what would be that the five key things that you would say? Okay, so let's get beverages. I'm going to throw tea and coffee in it as one. They they have such powerful benefits and it's something that any almost anyone can incorporate into their everyday life yeah. easily. And they probably already do it. So keep doing the good thing. That's one. I'm going to lump those two into one. Second one, tomatoes. Absolutely great. Cook them, eat them raw. Um, uh, by the way, in the market, sometimes you see these purplish tomatoes now. They've got like a a dark color to them. They have anthocyanins. They have even more bioactives that also fight your um, uh, 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 harmful body fat. So tomatoes are a good one, second category. Third, I want to say are beans, white beans, lentils, uh, red beans, black beans, any kind of beans. They actually have phytic acid. They uh, are bioactive. They are great sources of dietary fiber. And by the way, the common denominator of the diet of people who live long and prosper in the blue zones is that they have legumes, some kind of beans. Could be edamame beans, it could be white beans. And you find these in all those Mediterranean and Asian cultures, those traditional cuisines, they all have bean dishes. That's the third one I would actually say. Fruits, um, although tomatoes are fruit, I would encourage people to really enjoy seasonal fruits. Uh, Mm. Two good choices are peaches in the summer, 
There's nothing more, this is a little bit of my personal preference, nothing better to me than a juicy, ripe peach in the summer. I've got some in my refrigerator right now. Amazing. It's a like a like a delight to me. Um, and in the fall, a little bit later, you can have pears or apples. So I think fruits like that are uh, really uh, quite amazing. Okay, mm. so beverages we covered, tomatoes, uh, um, uh, fruits, uh, beans we covered. Uh, and the last thing I would actually say are tree nuts. Tree nuts, um, as something you would snack on during the day, are amazing because they're diverse. Uh, macadamia, walnuts, pecans, almonds, pistachios, pine nuts. You know, the pine nuts you actually can make pesto with. What a great way to actually get these. So again, <laughs> so you get great sources of dietary fiber that can be cooked in lots of different ways. Now, here's, again, I want to give you, uh, give anyone listening to this practical pro tips because, um, you know, even good plant-based foods can be not so good if they're find their way into sort of these big manufacturing processes that that put them through a lot of added chemicals or added sugar. So buy your nut, buy tree nuts, um, the kind you like, or mix them together, get the mix you like, um, kind of like, I wouldn't say raw, but prepare to eat in the sense of like they've been cooked like cashews need to be cooked to eat them or, or shelled. It makes it a lot easier for you. Make up your own preparation of your nut snack. If you like them, a really easy way to do it is that, you know, they're ready to eat when you buy the nuts in bulk out of a scoop. But if you want to actually make it tasty, um, take a cookie sheet, put a little uh, foil on it, put a little bit of extra virgin olive oil, put your nuts down, put the nuts into the pan, um, sprinkle a little bit more oil, and then sprinkle a little, a little bit of salt, not too much sodium, a little bit of salt to light up the taste. And then take your choice of dried herbs, and spices to light it up. Turmeric uh, uh, has got curcumin. Mm, mm. Chili peppers have capsaicin. Capsaicin, when it when the, the zing lights up on your tongue, text messages your brain, sends uh, signals down your the nerves in your neck down to your brown fat, triggers that brown fat to undergo thermogenesis, and now you're burning down harmful fat. So here's how you can actually have roasted nuts that you get to flavor and season yourself. So you know there's no chemicals in there that you can then actually use to activate your metabolism and you get a good source of dietary fiber, which we don't get enough of for most of us in society. A great way, I think I covered five there with a couple of little extras. <laughs> you did, kind of like coffee and tea were one. But yeah. no, I just think there's practical tips and I love it. It's like a trial mix, a homemade trial mix. Those things where, you know, if we are running around just having that in our bag or, you know, I even made when I was in Sicily, I loved Parmigiana, but I was like, how can I add more protein and good fats into this? And I swapped it out when I made a cashew cheese, which actually doesn't take very long, a bit of yeast, a blender, some water, some cashews. And I actually used that instead of Parmigiana through the dish. Oh, okay. Wait, but then did you include Parmesan in there? I didn't. No, I substituted it with cashew cheese and then I had like a little bit of mozzarella on the top. And so this is actually something that, you know, I'm very passionate about because I, in case your listeners or viewers didn't get this, I really, I'm a foodie. I enjoy food and I actually enjoy cooking food and I enjoy exploring food. So I, just, I spent a few months this summer um, uh, uh, exploring the Mediterranean and I go into the markets to take a look at what is part of the culture at this time. And I think about the science and I connect it to what people are eating and how they're eating it. And I talk to people about how to do preparation. So your little tip on the 
cashew cheese uh, uh, spread is fantastic. But I do want to actually tell you that there is a um, little known benefit to us um, having, enjoying Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese as it's made in Italy. Oh, tell okay? me. Um, it turns out that cheese is a fermented product, right? That's no surprise, mm. yeah. like yogurt. And original made cheese like you would have in Italy or like you would have in France, for example, or in the Netherlands, okay, mm-hmm. um, uh, are made with starter bacteria. And so you wind up actually having a probiotic food. So it's been studied that Parmesano-Reggiano, the starter in it is called Lactobacillus ruteri. That is a beneficial gut bacteria mm. that we don't get enough of. And so if you are choosing among a cheese spread and you feel that you want to be tempted to have a little bit of this salted cheese that has, you know, too much of it's got a lot of saturated fat, but you want to just sort of say, you know what, I got to find a reason to snack, to taste a little bit of this stuff. It's a probiotic. It's a good probiotic cheese in moderation. So next time I come round when I'm having pasta at my local Italian across the road and they say, do you want some Parmigiana? I say, yes, it's great for my gut. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's going to be my answer. So, Salih, thank you so much for coming on and sharing such an extensive amount of knowledge. I honestly was speaking to some people this morning. They saw your book. They were all saying in the meeting how obsessed they were with your book. You know, first of all, congratulations on such a success of your second thank book. You. Your first book I actually bought for my father after he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And that really, really helped him on his journey. So thank you so much for all your incredible work. And we'd absolutely love to have you back on the show to just talk more about the subject that is really hard to fit into one podcast episode. <laughs> It'll be a pleasure. Pleasure is mine and I would look forward to coming back. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much, Dr. William Lee, for coming on to Live Bar Be Well. Now, there was so much richness in that conversation and I've just asked Dr. William Lee a bonus question for my Apple subscribers on why we should get into food journaling before we start exploring our health journey. Head to Apple Podcasts to start your free trial of Live Well, Be Well. I've got a quick question for you before you go. Are you ready to reset your health? If you've been listening to my podcast or watching my YouTube channel for a while, you'll know that I believe everyone's well-being journey is totally unique and it needs to be tailored to you. But sometimes with all that important information out there, it's tough to know what to listen to, what to ignore or to prioritize, how to make the best decision for you. It means taking that first step just gets put off, delayed or even ignored. But I'm here to help and I am so excited to offer you my 30-day mini course to help revitalize, restore and totally reset your health so you can discover the happiest of you. Your journey might include harnessing your breathwork and mindfulness game, changing up your diet for healthier meals or simply improving your daily habits to be healthier and happier. Whatever your decision, my course is the perfect jumpstart you need and you'll get access to the course for a one-off payment for just $14.99. Just click the link in the description or visit my website and I'll see you there. Thanks for listening.